we will end our story of Esther today. We are going to see the culmination of Esther's decisions. Esther faced, at a time in this story, she faced a fork in the road. Now, I know some of you kids may not know that, what that means, and some of you are very literal. It's not this kind of fork. It's this kind of fork. It's, it's like a path on a hike, and we have to make a decision which way we're going to go. Esther faced a decision which path she was going to follow. One path represented obedience and faith and trust and wisdom. The other path represented self-protection and fear and deception and worldliness. We know that Esther ultimately chose the right path, but this book is not as much about the path that Esther chose as it is an understanding and seeing that God is at work in the good and in the bad. God is the unseen sovereign in the book of Esther, and he is the unseen sovereign today. As, as believers in, in, in where we stand today, there, there is much that has changed in the relationship between us and between God since this story of Esther took place. Namely, Jesus happened. But the reality is, is that God is sovereignly at work behind the scenes today, just as he was in the time of Esther. Today we read about Esther saving the Jews, but really God saved the Jews, and he used Esther, and he continues to save today using a much better Savior than Esther. So let's jump in and see what he has to say. If you want to turn with me to the book of Esther, if you haven't been with us in these last few weeks, or if you're new to your Bible, you can look at the table of contents, or if you go to Psalms and then hang a left, um, Esther is right between Nehemiah and Job. Last week, Ryan shared um, of the beginning of the great reversal. Haman, as we saw in the video, Haman had evil plans for Mordecai, but those plans ended up turning back on himself. We saw the beginning of the victims in Esther becoming the victors. And we see that finished today in chapters 8 and 9. We are going to read chapter 8. We're not going to read chapter 9, but we're going to read through chapter 8, starting at verse 1. So read with me. On that day, King Ahasuerus, and we have to remember that's the, the Hebrew name, Greek name is Xerxes, gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman. When he says he gave her the house of Haman, it, there was like a position in, in the house. It wasn't his physical place of living. It was the position held by Haman. He gave to Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. It's like Haman becomes almost like prime minister of the empire under King Xerxes. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy us. He wrote to destroy the Jews who are all in the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? 
Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. He hands over to Esther the right to to do whatever needs to be done to stop the killing of the Jews. Verse 9, the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. What an amazing undertaking this was. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. And then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. We see in this chapter the culmination of the reversal. When the edict was transformed so that so the Jews could, could protect themselves from anybody that was armed to destroy them, pursuant to the edict that was devised by Haman. And we see this amazing reversal for Mordecai as he leaves with all of the trappings of royalty. The, the, the clothes of royalty, the signet ring, the authority of royalty. It's an amazing transformation. And then in, in, in uh, Esther chapter 9, we read of the Jews' attacks on their enemies. It says that the attacks took place on the 13th day of the Hebrew month of Adar, which interestingly was the very day that Haman, when he cast lots in chapter 3, I think, uh, cast lots, that was the day that the Jews were to be destroyed. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 9, in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, and then it says this, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. And the Jews gained mastery over their enemies. We see if we read on in chapter 9 that many people were killed. Even though they had the right, it says, to kill women and children, to take plunder, what we read is that only men were killed in defense 
of the Jewish people. When it was done in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 9, the Jews gathered for a day of feasting and gladness. And then in verse 20, we read of the inauguration of the Feast of Purim. It says this in verse 20, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Then later in verse 26, we read that they called this the Feast of Purim based on the the term pur, which means casting of lots, casting of lots being what Haman did to determine which day to carry out his plot against the Jews. And they continue, Jewish The Jewish community continues to celebrate Purim to this day. And from everything I have read, it is quite a party. A lot of food. They wear costumes. They even boo as they read the story of Esther anytime Haman's name is mentioned. Back then, it was a time of celebration for God's people, a time of celebrating their salvation. And they continue that celebration to this day. And that generally takes us to the end of the book of Esther. I think we've seen many things in Esther, but these are the highlights, I think, that we see. And and then I want to talk about what those mean for us today. I think we see first that God is at work behind the scenes. Very clearly, things looked bad often, but God was always at work behind the scenes that things couldn't be seen on the outside. We see that Esther, Esther risks her status and her life to save God's people. We see Mordecai and Esther go from marginalized sub-citizens of Persia to royalty. Their status was changed dramatically. And finally, here at the end, we see God's people commit to never forgetting the amazing gift of their salvation. I think as we think back over this book, there is much for us to emulate in the lives of Esther and Mordecai. And something in us, I think, just naturally wants to celebrate with them. We want to acknowledge their status as heroes. We want to name our daughters Esther. I don't know why we don't see more Mordecais. But I think something in all of us wants a hero or something in all of us wants to be a hero. No matter how strong or weak or timid or bold we might be, we create heroes all the time. We create them out of politicians. We create them out of our parents. We create them out of athletes. We create them out of entertainers. We create them out of successful businessmen or successful entrepreneurs. We create them out of authors. We often create our heroes out of pastors. We crave the heroic. But Esther and Mordecai are like every human hero. They have flaws and they have weaknesses. They have limitations to their heroic character because at the end of the day, they are simply sinners like the rest of us. But Esther is not the story of just a flawed human hero. It is all about the unseen sovereign at work behind the scenes all the time. And in the story of Esther's saving the Jews, we are pointed to the ultimate salvation of God's people, and we are pointed to the only unflawed hero, the story of the unseen sovereign coming to earth, making himself visible as a man, 
living a sinless life, dying the death and bearing the punishment that every single one of us deserve, and expanding God's family beyond the nation of Israel to every person who believes in him and who surrenders their life to follow him. Esther is a hero of this story, but Jesus is the better hero. Esther helped save the Jews in this story, but Jesus is the better Savior. Everything that we see in Esther is perfectly iterated by Jesus, the Son of God. We see that in these points. We see in Esther God was at work. God is still at work behind the scenes. He is at work in so many ways. I thought specifically of how many people, how many of you tell me about your unsaved, your lost friends, the your friends and family who don't know Jesus and whose hearts seem so hard. And I wonder if you realize that God is at work in that situation. You may not be able to see it. You don't know what he's doing behind the scenes. I wonder how many of you are in circumstances that are troubling or hard or difficult and it feels like God is silent. He is at work behind the scenes. As he was in Esther, he still is today. Esther risked giving up her status and risked giving up her life to save God's people, but Jesus willingly did give up his status and he did get of his life to save the world. In Philippians 2, 5 and 8, we, see, we read this. Verses 5 through 8. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was the son of God. He had all the trappings of the world and royalty at his fingertips, and he gave those up. He was born humbly. He was raised poor. He was mocked and scoffed at and scorned, and ultimately he was killed like a common criminal. He endured our shame. He, know, he knew no sin, but it says in Romans that he became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, which allows us into relationship with God. He didn't just risk his status like Esther did. He gave it up for us. And why did he have to do that? We have to remember that absent Jesus, we are exactly in the same place that the Jews were in Esther. Without Jesus, we are doomed. We sometimes don't see it, but we have to understand sin, the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, sin separated us from God. Without Jesus, we stand apart from God in relationship now, and we risk being separated from him for eternity. But it's not just that we are doomed to hell for eternity. We are also doomed to a sort of living death without Jesus. We remain dead in our sins. We remain stuck in our flesh. We're unable to experience the joy and the freedom of what it means to have a life in Christ. Our life becomes one of striving and striving for something that we will never really find without God, even though we will try every way possible. The Jews in the book of Esther knew their risk, and we need to know our risk too. So Jesus gave up his status and obedience to his father. When Esther risked her status 
God came in and saved them and he destroyed their enemies. In the same way Jesus obeyed his father and he destroyed the power of our enemy over us. Like Esther advocated to the king for her people, Jesus advocates to God for us. We may think we have many enemies. We may see things all over the world that we think are our enemies, but really we have just one enemy. And our salvation means that only that that the only true enemy we have, Satan, is defeated. Salvation for us through Jesus means that death and the power of death are defeated. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57, he said this, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 2, 14 and 15 says that Jesus forgave our sins. It says he nailed the debt that we owed to the cross. Romans 8, 37 through 39 says that through Jesus we are more than conquerors. And it says nothing, not rulers, not death, not powers, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ if we know him. And I love the last verse of the song Living Hope that we just sang. Then came the morning, Easter morning, when Jesus comes to life and rises from the dead. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe. Out of the silence, the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me. Yours is the victory. This is the joy of salvation. We are now God's. We no longer fear death because death has been defeated. We look forward to an eternity with Christ in heaven. But the defeat of the enemy is not just something that kicks in when we die. It is the whole story of Esther coming to life for us now. It is no fear when our circumstances are scary. It is knowing that God has us when we lose our job or when we get sick or when we are lonely or when we fail, or when nothing seems to be working out for us. It is experiencing joy, experiencing joy and peace and purpose in a way that the world will never understand and in a way that far surpasses even the greatest ways of the world. This is what Jesus gave up his status and his life for us to have. Like Esther and Mordecai, whose status was changed to royalty, those who follow Christ go from enemies of God to royalty. There is no neutral place between man and God. God's word says that you are either an enemy of God or you are a friend of his. You are an enemy of God or you are sons and daughters of his. Jesus' sacrifice for those of us who choose to follow him, to choose the path of righteousness, his sacrifice transforms our status in an instant. We go from an enemy of God to a son of God or a daughter of the king. John 1.12 says that we have been given the right to become children of God. 1 Peter 2.9 calls us, those of us who follow Jesus, who know him, calls us a royal priesthood. Romans 5.10 reminds us that we were reconciled to God while we were his enemies by the death of Jesus. We are offered a brand new identity in Christ, a royal identity that can never be taken away. 
And finally, just like the Jews in Esther were commanded to remember their salvation in the Feast of Purim, Christ followers commit also to never forgetting the amazing gift of our salvation. We'll get to that in just a second. But before we get there, I want to put a question before each one of you. The truth is that every person in this room will face a fork in the road at some point in our lives. Matthew calls our options at the fork in the road either a narrow gate that leads to life or a wide gate that leads to death. One path leads to life and another path leads to death. I think as I think and prayed through through who would be in this room today, I know that there are some of you in this room who don't really even know that you're facing a fork at all. Life is a struggle for you. It is striving. Maybe it's empty and meaningless and exhausting and you don't know why and you're spending your whole life trying to give your life something of meaning. And that's because there is a fork in the road in front of you with two options. One choice leads to life. Life does not mean your struggles and the issues of your life are taken away, but it means you have the power through the Holy Spirit to find meaning in your struggles, to find God in the middle of your struggles. The other path leads to death. Will you trust the way of life? But I also know, and I thought specifically of people that I know in this other position, you've been standing at the fork in the road for a long time just staring at it. You know what you need to do. You know where God is calling you, but you're unwilling to take a step. We, uh, as a staff, went on a staff retreat this past week, and part of our retreat was a high ropes course at Mount Hermon. And I found myself on these little platforms um, high above the, the surface of the ground in giant redwood trees. And I would have taken a picture, but my arms were busy hugging the tree for dear life. But we would stand on that platform, and out of the platform were paths. And you had to decide to take a step. And you found yourself, at least for a moment, I think we all would find ourselves in this moment of sort of being paralyzed. We had to decide, I'm going to trust the harness that is holding me up, and I'm going to take a step. I think some of you are like that with Jesus. You're sitting there and you know the option in front of you, but you're afraid to commit. You're just afraid to surrender your life and to follow the path of Christ, trusting him in that process. I get your fear. I remember years ago, I wrote a poem about this called, called The Chasm. I remember this time in my life when I felt like I was pummeling down a dark chasm to my death. I knew at some point I was gonna hit the ground I knew it was coming. And I also knew that I could sense God's hand, Jesus' hand reaching down to me. And even though I could see his hand and I could see his offer of rescue, I still wasn't sure that I wanted to take that hand, even though I knew that at some point I was going to hit bottom. I didn't trust him until I did. I didn't want his hand until I did. And I grabbed it and he lifted me out and he put my feet on a firm foundation and he began walking with me in a journey that I would never trade for anything and I will never be the same again. 
I understand your fear. My prayer is that you would just take the hand. Take a step of faith down the road of life. There are many others of you who took the path of life maybe years ago, maybe recently. Maybe you started out well, but you've gotten off track in the process. You've maybe chosen sub-paths as you've gone along of disobedience rather than paths of obedience. Many of you, I know because I talked to you, many of you in this room feel stuck. You've, taken a, uh, you've moved into relationship with God, but you feel stuck. I want you to remember that God will never take you past your last step of obedience. God may be calling you to turn back where you said no. And to take a new step following what God's calling you to do. For many of us in this room, the answer today might be repentance. It's a big word. It just means turning from our sin, turning from our self-absorption and our selfishness and following God in obedience. For some of you, that may be a first-time thing. For other of you, you may be doing it for the hundredth time. But I think for all of us today, we need the reminder of the gospel we need the reminder of the good news of Jesus Christ every day in our lives. Since the beginning of this summer, I have been very sensitive to my daily need for the gospel. I need the basics of the good news in my life every day. We need, as, a, as the collective body of Christ, we need to remember the magnitude of what God did for us in sending his son to die for us. We need to remember what we were and how different that person is compared to what we are and who we are in Christ. We need to remember that we did not and we cannot earn anything from God. But what he gave us, he gave us freely. And we need to remember that he offers us daily grace. He offers us exactly the help that we need in the moment that we need it. We need to remember that before we were saved, we were being pursued by an enemy content only to destroy us. And we need to remember that even when saved, we are pursued constantly by an enemy who would love nothing more than to make us forget all that we have in Christ. But we also need to remember that that enemy no longer has power over us. We need to remember that we are sons and daughters of the King. We need to remember and celebrate what we have in Christ because there is no greater gift. There is no greater salvation. 